Last week, my cousin uh, came to church for the first time to visit. She lives out of town, and she happened to be in town with her fiancé, and she was kind enough to come to church. Now, she uh, grew up in a Syrian Orthodox church. That's the background that I come from and had not spent a lot of time in Protestant churches, and she's a very sharp, intelligent young woman. And so afterwards, when we had lunch, she had lots of questions uh, for why we do what we do at the church, and it was fun to answer those questions and talk with her. But the thing, one of the things that probably most fascinated her was the discussion of elders. And so she wanted to know how that worked. In the, if you're not familiar with the Orthodox Church, there are not elders uh, in the Orthodox Church. And so she was fascinated by the fact uh, that there are a group of men who are the final spiritual authority for the church. And she wanted to know things like, how do they get that job? How does that work? And so I tried to explain to her, uh, we have a nomination process and that anybody in the church can nominate someone to be an elder. There's a nominating committee that goes through and prays over and vets the candidates in accordance with uh, the kind of the stuff that's in the Bible uh, about the qualifications for being an elder. There's a process by which the current elders get to kind of pray through uh, the candidates and try to ask the Lord which of those candidates are being highlighted. And then usually we end up with uh, seven, eight, nine candidates, uh, usually for three or four or five positions. And we do that in part because we want to say, Lord, at the end of the day, we want God to be the one ultimately making the choice uh, who's going to be the elder. Now, at that point, I explained to her, when we have more than we have slots, which is usually the plan, we then get together at our annual meeting, which incidentally is coming up next month, and we pray and then cast lots and ask God to choose uh, from among these people who it is that he's choosing uh, to be an elder to serve for this upcoming term. Now, when I said that we cast lots, there was a look of relief on her face. She said, oh, good. I thought you were going to say when there were more candidates than there were slots that you guys held like a popular vote to decide which one was going to be in that position. I said, no, 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 we cast lots. I was too embarrassed to tell her we used to vote... <laughs> for people in those positions. We used to have sort of a majority vote or a popular vote. And uh, we don't do that now. And it's interesting, we sort of made that shift several years ago uh, to casting lots. And it was because the Lord led us to do that. But it's interesting that it highlighted that sort of popular vote idea, highlighted a danger that I didn't know was there until after we shifted to casting lots. And let me explain what I mean. Before we cast lots and let God sort of choose, I do believe the Lord was at work and I do believe the Lord chose uh, men to serve in those positions and I believe that God was active and involved and I certainly praise him for that. But I just anecdotally want to note that during those meetings that I was a part of, when we were sort of choosing elders via popular vote, I would occasionally hear a comment when it was time to sort of make an unpopular decision or talk about something that might be difficult for the congregation. I would occasionally hear the comment, now we got to remember who voted for us to be here and we've got to take their interests into account and then often we would then not do the thing that was probably going to be seen as unpopular. Now I didn't realize that was happening until after we shifted to uh, sort of casting lots and, and praying and asking God to make the final choice. It was very interesting in elder meetings, the comments shifted from that to something more along the lines of, 
We gotta remember, friends, that God is the one who chose us for these positions. We need to do this whether people are going to like it or not. You see, one of the main things with being a leader is making decisions, and one of the difficult things with making decisions is trying to decide who are we trying to please? Like, who are we making this decision for? And the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians puts it in very stark, binary sort of terms. He says this in Galatians 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Very stark terms. You can either be someone who pleases people or you can be someone who serves Christ. You can't do both. Our story this morning is a story from the Gospel of Matthew in which we get to think about the fact that all of us are tempted towards people-pleasing. All of us feel this pull to want to do things that are gonna be popular, that are gonna be accepted. We want to be affirmed. We want those around us to think highly of us, to favor us, to bless us. And our story from the Gospel of Matthew wants to encourage us as we get started on this new school year, as the fall kicks off, as lots of things get started, that we got a choice. You and I can either choose to try to please people or we can be servants of Christ. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that looks just like this in the rack in front of you. If you take one of those Bibles and turn to page 795, you will be in Matthew chapter 14. Now, if you're visiting or you're new to Calvary, you might think, well, we're kind of right in the middle of something. It's September, we have been doing the Gospel of Matthew for an entire year last year, and we've only made it halfway through. We took a little break in the summer and we went back to something called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, and it's the greatest teaching sort of ever given, the most popular and famous teaching, and so we spent lots of time working through that. <clears throat> we're now jumping back into the narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're jumping back into Matthew 14, we're about halfway through this 28 chapter, first book of the New Testament. And we begin with admittedly a tough story. So Matthew 14, page 795, I'm gonna read verses one to 12. And then we're gonna talk together about people pleasing and serving God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. 
His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Up front, we should admit, this is a difficult and hard passage in that. Why would this happen to John the Baptist? This is a person of whom Jesus declared that up until that point, no greater person had lived than John the Baptist. All through the Old Testament, John the Baptist, this great servant of God, and yet he meets this very grisly, gruesome, difficult end. And we have to admit, this is not how we want the story to turn out. One thing I do love about the Bible is that it tells us the truth, whether we like it or not. And sometimes our lives don't turn out the way we would like them to turn out. And here in this story, we see that for John the Baptist, who was this great servant of God, he had a very, very difficult end. And so we just need to admit that and acknowledge that God is telling us the truth often about how life goes. A couple things also to make sense of what's happening here, because it can be a little confusing. First, this story is a flashback. So at the time of Matthew 14, Jesus is going around Galilee doing miracles, and Herod, when he sees Jesus, thinks, that's John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's not, but that's what he thinks which gives Matthew the opportunity to go back in time and to tell the story about what happened to John the Baptist. So by the time Matthew 14 comes around, John has already been executed. But it's important for Matthew to tell this story at this point because I think for you and I this morning, God has something to tell us from the story of Herod and John the Baptist. The other thing to explain before we get started into the story is the machinations that gave rise to what's happening here. To go back in time a little bit even from this story, there was a man named Herod the Great who we met in Matthew chapter 2. He was the ruler of Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great is in charge of all of what we might know of as Israel at that time. But Herod the Great dies not long after Jesus is born. Herod has a number of sons. One of those sons is named Philip. Philip's mentioned in our story. Philip is given rule over a section called Galantis, which is sort of the eastern part of Herod's territory. And his one son, Philip, is given that to rule. Philip marries a woman named Herodias. And together, Philip and Herodias have a daughter whose name is Salome. She's not named in our story, but that's the girl in the story. She's the daughter of Philip and Herodias, and we think she's probably about 12 years old at this time. Now, Herod the Great had another son who's named Herod Antipas. That's the Herod in our story. He rules a section called Galilee, which is where Jesus is doing most of his miracles and work, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what brings him in connection with Herod. At some point after Philip and Herodias had had this child, Salome, Herod Antipas has an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias. She leaves his brother Philip and comes to live with him. John the Baptist says, yeah, that's not right. 
And so John goes and confronts Herod on his behavior, which is sinful, unbiblical behavior, and Herod has him thrown in prison. Now, just from that description, you might think of Herod Antipas as being this domineering leader, like, don't cross Herod, because if you even say anything to him, you'll get thrown in prison like John the Baptist. But the truth of the matter is, is that God loves to reveal not just what's going on on the outside, but what's going on in the heart. And in this story, we actually are told Herod's motivations for the things that he's doing. And what we find out is that Herod is actually a people pleaser. And the interesting thing is, is that sometimes the leaders that we think are sort of the most domineering and the most harsh and the most strong, those are the ones most beset by insecurities, by fears, by trouble, by people pleasing. And so this morning as we look at the character of Herod, we have the opportunity to be honest with one another and to acknowledge that all of us struggle with people-pleasing tendencies. We all want others to like us. We all want others' opinions of us to be high. And so this morning as we look at this story, Herod gives us a great opportunity to think about people-pleasing and how you and I may be falling into that trap, perhaps without even knowing it. So as we go through, let me give you four observations about those who struggle with people-pleasing from the life of Herod in this story. Number one, people who struggle with people-pleasing are often powerless in decision-making. Look at verse five. Herod wanted to kill John, because, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now at first glance, you might think Herod wants to kill John because John came and told him he shouldn't be sleeping with Herodias. Herod got all upset, lost his temper, threw John in prison, and desperately wants to kill him. That's a possible reading. I don't actually think that's what's going on. Because look in verse 3. Now Herod had John arrested and bound him and put him in prison... Because of Herodias. I think Herod has put John in prison to try to please his wife. Herodias is the one who wants John killed. After all, what does Herod think of John? Well, he thinks enough of John that when Jesus shows up doing miracles... He thinks that's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Which means Herod doesn't think John is a false prophet. Herod thinks that John actually hears from the Lord. Herod realizes that John is saying something that's true. So much so that after he kills John, he basically is having these nightmares that John is going to be raised from the dead and come back. Herod actually has a quite a high view of John. Why does he put him in prison well because his wife she's not so happy with John he's trying to please her and after all when we get to the end of the story who is it that really really wants John dead it's his wife Herodias I think Herod is making this decision because he's trying to please his wife but the problem is 
the people think John is a prophet also. And so he can't actually do what she wants, which is kill him. And so he's come up with this middle ground is, is that he's put him in prison. You know, the funny thing is, is as you read this story, Herod seems almost powerless. His wife's the one who wants John dead. Herod doesn't. So he has to throw him in prison. But then he's not allowed to kill him because all of the people don't want John killed. And then who ends up making Herod kill this man? A 12-year-old girl. And you get the sense that because Herod is a people pleaser, he actually is powerless in making decisions for himself. And this is the problem when we're trying to please others. We're unable to make a decision on our own. Second, people who struggle with people pleasing do things publicly that they should do privately. This daughter, Salome, dances for Herod and his guests. And then Herod makes a very public oath. What does he say to her? He will give her anything she wants up to half the kingdom. What in the world is Herod doing making this promise so publicly? This could have gone bad in so many different ways. Who knows what this girl is going to say? You've promised her a blank check in front of all of these people. Why in the world would Herod do this? He should have taken her aside and said, good job. I'd like to give you a reward. What would you like? But he does this publicly in front of everybody. Why? Well, it says in the story that she pleased him. And remember, he's a people pleaser. She pleases him and he thinks, this is pleasing. These people are probably pleased as well. And this euphoria about getting the chance to please everybody, he wants to jump on the bandwagon. And so he wants to be seen as a person who appreciates uh, this dancing. He wants to be seen as a person who rewards those who serves him. And so he blurts out publicly, hey, look, I'll give you anything you want. When we're trying to please people, we want to get in on like, hey, there's something great happening. How do I associate my name with this? How do I retweet this? How do I put a like on this? How do I put myself in social media? How do I be seen as being part of what's going on so those people see me connected with this? And what Herod should have done privately, he ended up doing publicly. And it comes back to bite him. Number three, people who struggle with people-pleasing Create strange family dynamics. Herodias wants John killed. But at the beginning of the story, will Herod kill John? No. Why? Because he's more afraid of the people than loving his wife. He doesn't kill John because it's the wrong thing. He not kill John because it's the wrong thing to do. God tells us he's not killing John because he's more afraid of the people then he loves Herodias. How do you think that makes her feel? This is what people-pleasing does. It says to the person we're supposed to love, I actually am more scared of them than I am loving you. So this creates wounds in her. So what does she do? She takes it out on her 12-year-old daughter. How much must she talk about hating John for her daughter to do this? You know what the saddest thing about this story is? I mean, the saddest thing is that John the Baptist's head that he's beheaded and killed, this great servant of God. Do you know what the second saddest thing about this story is? A 12-year-old girl 
is offered anything she wants and she gets a decapitated head as a present. I mean, she should have asked for a pony, right? (laughs) Seriously. Or a new bedroom or a trip to Rome or half the kingdom. A 12-year-old girl asks for a head. Why did she do that? To please her mom. Where'd she get the people-pleasing from? She's been watching Herod. Do you see what people-pleasing does to family dynamics? It makes everything go crazy. Herodias is hurt. Herod can't make decisions. Salome's making bad decisions. All because of the people-pleasing going on in this situation. Fourth, people who struggle with people-pleasing get caught eventually between two groups of people that they cannot please at the same time. Herod is distressed because he's stuck. He made a very public pronouncement that he would give this girl anything she wanted and now she's come and asked for something he desperately doesn't want to do. But he's stuck because he's got to please these people. But he also doesn't want to kill John because of all... This is ultimately what happens when you and I try to please people. Because people do not all agree. And the more we try to please people, the more we end up in situations where if I do this, it will make that person angry, and if I do this, it will make that person angry. That's not an accident. That's the Lord letting us see where people-pleasing always leads. Now, Herod is a character who struggles with people-pleasing. But just like in Galatians 1.10, when Paul, when Paul shows us this difference between pleasing people and serving God, there's a second character in this story who actually shows us what it's like to be a servant of God, and that's John the Baptist. So let me share four observations about John as a servant of God that maybe we'll resonate with as well. First, people who serve God have to share unpopular messages sometimes. Do you think John was glad for this assignment to go tell Herod, you can't be sleeping with this woman? I cannot imagine he relished this assignment. But what's John's job? He's a prophet. And what do prophets do? They tell whatever God tells them to tell. Sometimes it's good messages. Love being that kind of prophet. Love to deliver the peace and prosperity message. But if you are a servant of God, sometimes God is going to ask you to say something you don't want to say. John doesn't want to do this. But he's not trying to please Herod. He's trying to serve God. And those who serve God sometimes find ourselves having to share messages that we really don't want to share. Number two, people who serve God do privately what others might want to do publicly. Notice it says in verse four, for John had been saying to who? To him. I'm sure there are people in John's circles who would have loved for John to set up a very public gotcha moment for Herod. 
I mean, Herod has clearly sinned. He's clearly violated the Mosaic law. John's got him dead to rights. I'm sure there were people in the time that want to get all the paparazzi together, find Herod in a very public place, and have John hold the microphone up to him and say, surely you know you're breaking the law, right? And have this very public gotcha moment. I'm sure there are people in John's circles that want him to go on social media and cancel Herod. I'm sure there are people that want John to get it fired up and give a stump speech to rally the base to talk about how corrupt the politicians are. There are people that want a very public display, but what does John do? Who does he talk to? Herod. Why? Because God says if someone is sinning, go to that person privately and tell them. That's what John is doing. He's not trying to rally the base. He's not trying to be popular in public opinion. He says, not only do I have an unpopular message, I got to do this the way God wants it done. And people who serve God do privately what lots of people want us to do publicly. Number three, People who serve God are never truly alone. You know what the irony about people pleasers are? Nobody likes a people pleaser. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever thought about that? We work so hard to get people to like us, but then it ends up when nobody does. Nobody likes a people pleaser. Herod's got no friends here. John, on the other hand, do you know who's with John this entire time and never leaves him once? God. Even while he's in prison, Jesus sends messengers to minister and to encourage John. And did you notice how our story ended in verse 12? John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. John wasn't popular with everybody, but God made sure there were some people who were genuine friends of John. <clears throat> people who were his disciples, people who looked out for him, people who made sure he got a proper burial, people who made sure that others knew what happened to John. This is one of the blessings of serving God, is that when you serve God, you might feel alone, but you are never alone. Number four, people who serve God look most like Jesus and are honored as Jesus is honored. One of the downsides to jumping back in in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew after having done the Sermon on the Mount is we can forget that Matthew 14 comes right after Matthew 13. These were not sort of written with a three-month break in between. If you go back into the end of Matthew 13, look at how it ends, verse 57. So you just glance up to verse 57. It says, and they took offense at him. The they is Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and the him is Jesus. The very last thing that happened in Matthew 13 is Jesus goes to Nazareth, and it doesn't go well. So Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own home. Jesus was rejected at Nazareth because he refused to pander to tell them what it was that they wanted to hear. Jesus is not a politician. He's not going to Nazareth to try, to try to win votes. He's here to rescue and to save people. And when he goes to Nazareth, he tells them the very difficult truth that they got something wrong in their heart and they hate him for it. The very next story 
is John having to share, having to share an unpopular message and suffering as a result of it. The reason why Matthew puts this story right here is because when you see John, you're supposed to think of Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. When Herod sees Jesus, who does he think of? John. Isn't that amazing? How would you like it if someone saw Jesus and said, that guy reminds me of John the Baptist? Would that not be the greatest compliment? When people see John, they think of Jesus. And when people see Jesus, they think of John. More than that, I think the reason why Matthew put this passage here is because it's foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus. This is not the most tragic event in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the second most tragic event. The most tragic event is that the king of the universe, the creator of all things who had no sin, is going to be crucified by the very people he came to save. John's story is a picture of Jesus' story. How does it turn out for Jesus? Well, we say at the end of Matthew's gospel, after he is raised from the dead, all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus. That he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he will come back and reign and rule over all things. How do you think John's story is going to turn out? It's going to turn out great. Because when Jesus comes back, who do you think it is he's going to reward? Herod? He's going to reward those who chose to serve him. Jesus chose the unpopular path. And anybody who's willing to choose the unpopular, narrow path of serving God, those are the ones when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've chosen to serve me. Now come and reign and rule with me. And so those who choose to serve Jesus look most like Jesus and will be honored in the same way that Jesus is honored. So what do we do with this teaching? Well, this morning I'd like you, I'd like to ask you, which of these two characters are you resonating with? If we're honest, and I'll be honest with you, all of us struggle with people-pleasing. We want people to like us. Nobody wants to be unpopular. No one wants to say hard things. No one wants people to hate them. At school, at work, in our neighborhoods, everybody wants to share good messages. No one wants to share hard messages. The question is, at the beginning of this new school year, at the beginning of kind of the fall season kickoff, God gave us this story because I think he wants to ask us, are we resonating with Herod? Are we finding ourselves in a situation where we're having trouble making decisions because we're worried about what does everybody else think? What's my wife going to say? What are the people going to say? What is my daughter going to say? What's the population going to say? Do we find ourselves immobilized trying to figure out what's the decision that's going to make everybody happy? Do we find ourselves saying and doing things publicly, getting ourselves into trouble that we should be doing privately? Do we resonate with that and say, you know what, I think I've been doing some stuff on social media. I think I've been doing stuff at school because I'm trying to be popular. I'm trying to get people to like me. We all do it. God gives us the opportunity to say whether we, we see ourselves in this or not. Are we ending up in situations where we're creating family chaos? 
because we're trying to please everybody. We're trying to please in-laws. We're trying to please kids. We're trying to please siblings. We're trying to please neighbors. We're trying to please everybody. And as a result, instead of doing the right thing, we keep doing the wrong thing and we're wounding everybody else because instead of loving them sacrificially and serving them the way God asks us to serve them, we're trying to figure out how to make the family reunion work, how to make all the dynamics get along, how to make everything just the way everybody wants it to be. You come here this morning and perhaps you're caught, just like the rest of us. You got caught between two groups. You can't please both of them at the same time. Maybe the Lord brought you here this morning, not to condemn you, but to give you the opportunity to recognize, is this really the road you want to walk down? How does this turn out for Herod? This doesn't go well. All of us have a natural tendency to want to please others. Maybe God brought you and I here this morning to say, wouldn't it be better to be a servant of Jesus? You're going to have to say some hard things. You may not get to be as public as you want to get to be, but you'll never be alone. You'll look most like Jesus. And at the end, when all the cards are played, you'll be honored the way Jesus is honored. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give us an opportunity to just kind of maybe confess. To think about this coming year, maybe it's to dedicate ourselves to say, you know what, I've spent way too many years trying to please everybody. I need to do a better job of thinking, what does Jesus want me to do? And just do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a psalm. It's from Psalm 86. And we're going to use that as sort of a prayer of confession and a prayer of dedication. It comes in sort of three sections. You can bow your heads and close your eyes if you want. You can read the words on the screen uh, quietly as I go through them. You can think through whatever you want to do. But this is an opportunity between you and the Lord. When you and I try to please people, we end up offending God because he's the one who rescued us. He's the one we're supposed to serve. There's an opportunity to confess that to them. There's an opportunity for us to be able to say, Lord, let's make this year different. Please help me to do that. So as we go through these sections, I'll just talk you through them, and then just in the quiet of your heart, um, you can say to the Lord anything you'd like to say. We begin with, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And in the quiet of your heart, ask the question, have you been living a divided heart life? Have you been trying to please so many different people that you feel pulled in every different possible direction? Why not right now ask the Lord to give you an undivided heart that you might fear him rather than fearing what everybody else thinks, rather than fearing the public, rather than feeling, fearing embarrassment? Right now, ask the Lord to give you an undivided heart. Confess ways in which you have been afraid of everybody else's opinion and not his. Take just a moment to say these words to Jesus. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The psalmist goes on, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. 
You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. Did you come this morning facing some conflict or some relational difficulty or some problem and you were tempted to think, if I could just get in front of that person, if I could just talk to that person, if I could just get that person to like me, if I could just get that person to see me in a favorable light, then everything will be okay. This is an opportunity to say, your hope is not in those people. (laughs) There isn't anything you can do that will get them to feel about you the way God feels about you. And even if they did, they can't really help you. And so as we come to this moment, it's an opportunity to ask God, Lord, in this situation, in this relational trouble that I'm having, in this problem I'm having with one of my kids, in the problem I'm having at school, please, please, Lord, please help me in this situation. The last section. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you, just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Last question. Who would you rather serve? People or this God? Who do you know in your life that you could describe as being as gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness as God. This is the point. Why would we run after people's affections when we can serve the Lord? Do you know anybody who will ever treat you as kindly as he has? Why wouldn't we want to serve him? And so as you hear these words, you can take a moment to confess, valuing others too highly and the Lord too lowly. And simply be reminded, your Father who loves you, the gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness God, the God who saves you, who rescues you, he has great plans for you. Plans to bless you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. No one who serves him will ever be put to shame. And the encouragement as we start the school year, the encouragement as we start the fall semester is to say he's the one I want to serve. Let's pray. Lord, we are all guilty of wanting to please others. We have valued you more lightly than we should have. Forgive us, Lord. Take away from us our people-pleasing tendencies. Forgive us for our sins, both individually and as a church. Lord, give us undivided hearts that we may fear and serve you and you alone. 
For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.